Welcome to this episode of NASA Talks. This episode features a conversation with Ohio Securities Commissioner Andrea Seidt, a former NASA president and former chair of NASA's Investment Advisor Section, and Bob Webster, NASA's Communications Director. Commissioner Seidt and Mr. Webster discuss cybersecurity and fintech issues of interest to state-regulated investment advisors. We have exclusive regulatory oversight over the smaller state-registered investment advisors. Those are the advisors who manage assets under management up to $100 million. Uh, That used to be $25 million prior to Dodd-Frank, but they increased that back in 2012 in recognition of the state's, I think, exemplary record in this particular area. So we're the only ones that look at them. Uh, Investment advisor regulation, the states and the SEC divvy up the pot. So we take the smaller advisors, the SEC takes the larger advisors. Uh, Another important priority for us is cybersecurity. Again, we have those smaller advisors and they have reached out to us and asked for help. And so we're happy to provide help or happy to provide some tools. One of the things we did early on was create uh, a NASA cybersecurity checklist. You can find it on NASA's website. I encourage you to take a look at that. And they've been using that really as their tool to kind of build up their cybersecurity policies and procedures and protect those small retail clients. Um, one of the aspects of that checklist is identifying your digital assets. So where are the weaknesses? And so there's a there's a nice tool that they can use to help them identify, you know, where do I have information about my clients? You know, most people say it's on my computer. Well, there's a lot more than just your computer. You have a lot of apps. You have a lot of connections to cloud-based services, and, and there's information almost everywhere nowadays. So we now have created what we call the data inventory checklist that will help them go through and think through all the areas where client data may be, because if they don't know where it is, they can't really protect it. So I think that the industry is very happy that we've been very proactive and taking a pretty collaborative approach with them in order to protect retail clients. Well, Andrea, this might be a, a great time to talk about NASA's new information security model rule package. Sure. Um, I know NASA's members voted to adopt uh, the package in uh, late May. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a bit about the package, the need for it, and uh, what are the key components? Sure. So cybersecurity, as we've talked about already, is a huge priority for the section because it's a huge issue within the industry. Uh, you can't read a paper without hearing about a security breach or some kind of you know, exposure out there. Almost every day there's something happening. So anyone or any business that has asset to financial assets is always going to be a target. And even though they're small businesses, they're managing millions of dollars uh, at these state advisors are. So they're a huge target for hackers and other uh, you know, bad actors in, in the cybersecurity space. And so several years ago, we, I think we were one of the first regulators out there really surveying ad- advisors to figure out uh, whether they are aware of uh, cybersecurity policies and procedures. Are they uh, taking actions to identify those threats? What are they really doing to protect their clients in this space? Because again, they're under attack and their clients are under attack and there's a lot of real dollars hanging in the balance. So we did surveys several years ago, and we found out that the advisors uh, had a lot of of work to do, but they wanted help. It wasn't that they were ignoring it. It's just that they were small businesses, and they really wanted to know, what should we be doing? So one of the first things we did was create that cybersecurity checklist, which I already mentioned, to help 
you know, really ground, ground them and guide them as to what they need to do in order to create a cybersecurity program that will protect their clients. So we continue to survey to see, you know, how many uh, investment advisors have policies and procedures in place, how many of them might have cybersecurity insurance, for example. Are there breaches happening in state advisors? And, and I have nothing but good news to report, fortunately. It could go either way, right, Bob? But, right. but as of last year, we still aren't seeing breaches in this area. We vast majority of state advisors do have policies and procedures in place. So we, fi- we felt like we were finally at the point where we could enact a model rule that really formalizes what is already a best practice, something that we've promoted for a long time and catch any stragglers that are out there. So the model rule has several different components, but the real gist of it is that it's requiring state advisors to have written policies and procedures to protect client data. And it's not just cybersecurity. I think a lot of people have been calling it the cybersecurity rule, and certainly that's an important component of it, but physical security is important too. So if you have client data in hard files, not a lot of people do anymore, but if you do, you need to protect that as well. So we call it information security and privacy rule, no matter whether those files are kept physically or, or digitally. And we've borrowed what many people have called the NIST framework. I don't mean to get techie with you because <laughs> I'm really not all that technical, but it's a framework that uh, industry and regulators and the government have used for quite some time. It's, it's a nice framework. It's not a really prescriptive protocol, but it talks about five functions that everybody should be doing in order to protect their digital assets and their information. Just really common sense in my mind, the kinds of things that you should be doing. And so we borrowed that framework. It's embedded in our model rule, and and here are the five things that you should be doing and that we're now going to be requiring state advisors to be doing. Their physical security and cybersecurity policies and procedures have to identify these risks. They need to develop an understanding to manage that information and manage that security risk to their systems, their assets, their data and capabilities. So again, you can't protect your clients if you haven't identified the areas of the weaknesses. So step one is identify. Step two is protect. You need to develop and implement safeguards to ensure the delivery of infrastructure services. So now you know where your information is, you need to protect it. You need to have antivirus, malware, you know, applications in there to make sure that that information cannot be hacked. You need to use encryption. You need password authentication. And multi-factor authentication is obviously the best practice of the day. Make sure that that data, wherever it is, is protected. Third prong of that is detect. You need to design and implement activities that will identify the occurrence of a breach. So you have identified your information, you're protecting it, but you know sometimes those best efforts can't always protect you. Hackers are incredibly sophisticated, and sometimes it will happen. That's just you know, the way that things go. So you need to make sure you have systems in place to detect those breaches when they do occur, which lend to step four and five, respond and recover. So once you have had a breach, we hope it doesn't happen to you, state advisors, but if it does, how are you going to respond to that? You need to walk that through. How are you going to contain the threat? How are you going to stop the, the harm from happening? And then how are you going to recover? And, and, and so those are the five things that state advisors' policies and procedures should be covering by virtue of the new advisory rule. And there's a couple of other components that go in with that, a record-keeping requirement. You need to keep the records that show you're doing these five things. And then you also, uh, we have an amendment to our unethical business practice or prohibition rules that says it's 
it is an unethical business practice for you not to have these policies and to uh, maintain and enforce them. So it's not enough for you to have a policy, you need to make sure that you're enforcing. Switching gears for a minute, one of NASA's other key interest areas involves fintech. And I understand you recently were the lead author of a law review article on robo-advisors. Could you tell us a bit about uh, the paper? Sure. And uh, where people can find it? Sure. So uh, I'm happy to talk about that. It's something that we started looking at a couple of years ago when robo-advisors became more popular. We were hearing about firms like Betterment and Wealthfront, um, but didn't really know a lot about them. And part of the reason we didn't know a lot about them is that most of them are federal advisors. Uh, there's an exemption in the federal law for internet advisors or digital advisors, which clearly robo-advisors would fit into that category. So most of them are registered at the, the federal level, but they're certainly interacting with clients at the state level, and they're also interacting with our state advisors. A lot of times a state advisor will partner with a robo-advisor to provide investment advisor services to their clients. So we had a lot of interest in what was happening in the space, and so we asked a couple of our uh, leaders in the IA section to have some conversations with these firms, very informal, very um, you know voluntary it wasn't like we were going out and subpoenaing them for information we just wanted to sit down and, and talk with them so Nula Zaharis who is the Securities Georgia director director and one of her attorneys Charlie Jarrett uh, really undertook that effort and were able to speak with nine different robo advisors Betterment Wealthfront some of the larger ones and even some of the smaller ones like Acorns and just ask them about their business model talk with them about what they were doing, you know, and uh, see if there was a, a larger role for state regulators to play in this area. And so they did that. They provided some of their findings to us members, NASA members at Investment Advisor Training. It was really popular. What we found out is states are very interested, haven't had those conversations, so it was great to learn more. So it started out kind of just educational, not really with a strong regulatory focus. I had a friend uh, who's a professor at the University of Toledo that we partner with in some conferences from time to time. He was going to do a fintech symposium through his college of law and asked me to speak on robo-advisors. We talked about some of the work we had done, and I said I would be happy to do that. So I rounded up with Nula and Charlie and said, hey, well, let's do a law review article on this. Let's not just share it in training. Let's, you know, we've put a lot of effort in it. Let's, let's do a law review article. So I presented a paper discussing their findings and we spent some time in the fall really documenting our notes and also did a literature review of what else is out there in the academia regarding robo-advisors to, to share you know, what these new firms look like, who they're focusing on. A lot of people think of robo-advisors are just for millennials and what we found out that that is not true. Millennials like them, but there's a lot of clients, a lot of retail clients that use them because uh, of the convenience. You can access your robo-advisor 24 hours, seven days a week. You don't have to talk to an advisor. You don't have any of that pushy sales pressure sometimes that you might have with a direct human advisor. And so that's, millennials aren't the only ones who are interested in that. So we, we learned from talking to the robo-advisors and doing this research that it appeals to a lot of different kinds of clients and the costs are really low. Another interesting thing about robo-advisors are all of the new entrants to the market. They use low-cost mutual funds and low-cost ETFs that are really nicely diversified and uh, charge you know, way less than 
AUM compared to two percent being the norm for state advisors and so low cost very convenient option that is growing in popularity when betterment which i think a lot of people regard as the first robo advisor came out it took them almost a year to get their first million dollars in management they do um, 10 million dollars um, you know a month now so <laughs> it's it's really grown and so we talk about the industry from just an educational perspective about who the big players are and how much that industry has changed and then we talk about some of the regulatory issues because there are some we have state advisors who are partnering with them we care about fees we want to make sure that if the robo advisor is the real entity providing all the advice that state advisors are not charging extra fees to provide that service so fees are something that we're looking at the, at the state level licensing is a big issue if you have a, a robo firm you know people who gets licensed who are the bodies if we want to do an examination of a robo advisor how do we do that do we have the capacity to look at algorithms and make a determination that this algorithm is good it's safe it makes sense and this algorithm doesn't so we've identified areas where we as state regulators and federal regulators need to uh, create you know maybe get enhance our own resources and our own capacity in the fintech area which is really a challenge but we need to know that we need to work on that and it was certainly one of the take, strong takeaways from that paper For more information about the topics discussed in this episode, visit the Investment Advisor section of NASA's website under Industry Resources.